This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And this is the greatest film podcast in the entire world. I'm so excited. Make no bones about it. (laughs) We're not even pretending anymore that we're not. Why have humility at this point? We know we're great. Jump on board. (laughs) 100%. And and sorry for that, because I'm just so excited. We've got this really cool show. We've got this really cool guest. I want to just jump right in. Is that cool? Yeah, please. Please do it. Well, cool. So we are really stoked because anytime we get to bring a filmmaker on the podcast, it's a treat. And not only that, we've got this really amazing female filmmaker who has done amazing work in the horror genre, which we've talked about before. Women making horror films is so fucking cool and amazing. So we are just going to have a little chat and... I have a feeling it's going to evolve into a game, which I'm super excited about. So our guest today is a producer, director, and writer who's based in Calgary, Alberta. That's in Canada, for all you don't know. She's a competitive snowboarder. She has an MFA in film directing from Columbia University. She's produced award-winning short films, She's dragged herself and her camera over intense terrain while working as an assistant for documentary and experimental filmmakers. And she recently wrote, produced, and directed the horror-fueled film Dark Nature. And she's also an I Saw What You Did pod listener, and we're so excited to have her on Welcome to the podcast, Berkeley Brady. How are you? I'm very well, extra well, because I'm here. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is incredibly exciting for us. I mean, we're we're recluses in our normal life, but we're also recluses in that we don't usually have a lot of guests on the pod. Um, we're very selective about it. And I just think that you're the best. And I loved your film. And I just love your... I mean, you have one of the best bios, your production company, Nika Productions. Uh, everyone should go to that website and check it out. It's one of the best bios I've ever read. It's like, usually when you read a bio, you come away being like, yeah, but who is this person? Like, what the shit is this? I feel like I know you when I read your bio. So very accomplished, very cool. I'm very lucky. We're very lucky that we get to talk with you today. Uh, Thank you, guys. I cannot believe that you feel that way. I'm so happy. I'm just going to like replay this because honestly, (laughs) (laughs) it's really surreal because like I was saying, like I listened to you guys so much. And during the shooting of Dark Nature, it was just such a hard shoot at times. And I remember driving one day, you know, up at 430 on like four and a half hours of sleep, driving to the set. And I just did not want to go to the set. I was like, if I could not go, I wouldn't. (laughs) But you have to go. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, when you're the director, producer, and writer, you kind of you go. have to go. And um, honestly, I was like, well, a new pod, a new I saw what you did came on, and at least I can like listen to that. So that got me in the car. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness, I'm so excited about that. And we'll we'll start doing like personalized pods for you if you need on the set. <laughs> yeah, like, like pump up jams. <laughs> Like a Peloton for, like, filmmakers. Like, you need to feel this today. (laughs) Write it down. We love business ideas. Write it down. Email it. Email it to yourself. Email it to yourself. Put it in the Uh, the folder. But that actually brings up a good question because we've, you know, we've both watched, obviously, your incredible film, Dark Nature. And and now that you're talking about kind of going to the set and how tough it is to kind of bring yourself to the set, one thing that I I definitely wanted to ask is, like, how, like, what is your relationship to movies when you're making them? So, for example, like, when I'm writing a TV show, I don't really watch a lot of TV. When I'm writing books, I don't read a lot of books. But what is your relationship to film when you're in it? Because it is a really hard process. And you, you kind of gravitate towards making particularly difficult films like they're always you're like they're in nature and that they're always kind of like you put yourself in a precarious place already just with the topic and the subject of your film so how does that impact like do you do you wind down with a movie when you go home is it like nope I'll do that in three months yeah well I think there's such different hats that I wear when I'm writing and directing and it feels really nice when the writer hat really comes off and I'm directing because directing is so much more immediate. Whereas with writing, mm-hmm. you can, you know, you're always rewriting, you're always thinking about it. And there's every adjustment you make in a script could affect something else, which, oh, there goes, you know, 10 hours of your life that you had built that. Now that needs to come out, find the pages. So oh, it, it, it's so heady, whereas directing is just so physical. And so when I was directing Dark Nature, I think the days were just really long, plus the travel, plus I was pregnant. So, oh my God. <laughs> so I was just like, okay. When like, I, also, I was spinning plates and I was on fire the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I think some people wanted me to be on fire, but um, <laughs> I think that was definitely a big part was, I think coming home sometimes I would just like, I just want to put my feet up. You're, you're standing all day. So I would watch like, mm-hmm. you know, crappy TV and just, try not to watch it for too long because then you just need to sleep. Like I probably only have like 10 hours turnaround if even. Um, And then there's always script adjustments to make and notes to take and calls, emails, like there's always something to do. So there is no balance. And that's the one thing that would be really nice if we could just have some balance during that time, because even the weekends, even on a five day shoot week, we're working like the department heads and, and myself and producers, you're working right through those weekends. So at the end, I was just depleted. I just felt, I was like, this is what it feels like to have an empty cup. Like, this is the feeling. Yeah. And it's not a great feeling because it's kind of, you know, even you can't really, I mean, I feel like it's hard to see the product itself when you're that depleted in it. So it's kind of nice that it takes a couple of months for the editing and for the, so you can kind of get the the enthusiasm back (laughs) for like seeing the final product. Yeah. Um, Because again, it's like, it's really hard to be, and I'm glad that you kind of broke that down because I think a lot of people don't even understand like what each different job means. But like when you're a producer, it's a different hat and you're definitely more aware of, 
you know, reshoots and budgets and all that stuff. And when you're directing, it's a whole different visual field and a whole different physical field. Um, so it is, a, it's quite a lot to take on by yourself. It's not just, I think people kind of have this idea that when you're a producer and a director and a writer, you just kind of come in and are just like a tyrant. And that's not usually how it is. It's like, you have to make sure that everyone that's working on that movie is in contact with you most of the time. Yes. <laughs> like that's, you're really mm-hmm. highly communicative in that role. And I, I think the really successful directors, I was actually just shadowing Kari Skogland and she was directing the new Wind River movie. The They haven't got the title, but it's the, the second part. And I noticed what she was so good at, well, her stress management, she just doesn't go like up or down. She's just mm-hmm. so steady and she's so good at communicating. Like everyone's coming to her all the time. She finishes with one person. Kari, I'm waiting. She's just like, yeah. But she's just like, and then on to the next. Like, she's not like, great, this, this. Like, she'll show enthusiasm if she likes something. But just how she preserves her focus and her her just communication was just so good. And just little phrases that I took from her were like, well, one good one was um, if if she was waiting for something to happen, she would just say, what's between us and shooting? Oh, God, I love that. Right? And then I'm taking that. (laughs) <laughs> Take it. Yeah. Any any directors or anyone listening? And then maybe five minutes. Okay, well, we're five minutes on this. Okay. So at four minutes, she go, and what's between us and shooting? Just no, not like, what's between us and shooting? Excuse me? Like not, not, no edge, right. just a question. But she would keep asking the question until she gets there. And that yes. was, yes. <laughs> That's the kind of persistence that I think helps you maintain your sanity, where yeah. you're like, I just need to know what the answer is right now. Yes, <laughs> yeah, Like, exactly. I don't need to think about tomorrow or five days from now. Tell me what's going yeah. on right now so we can get through the day. That's beautiful. And you need yeah. that because, again, like, you're so prolific and I just I feel like you're you're also very adept um, like you're a very emotional director and mm-hmm. a very emotional writer um, and what I mean when I say that is that I, I feel like you are paying very close attention and you have a, a very developed story for who what the emotional lives of these characters are so that when it comes time to filming it's like you know the the whole story front and back. And when you're, as a viewer, you can kind of see, um, or I think it's easy to see kind of the depth of the characters. So it's, that takes a lot more effort on your part as well as a writer and, and director. But I also, like, I particularly love how Dark Nature really deals with a lot of, like, past trauma and monsters, both, you know, real and imagined. And it, I was kind of wondering, what is what is your relationship with confronting the past? Like, are you in therapy? Are you like constantly talking about like, oh yeah, by the way, I'm gonna make a movie about this because it still fucking bothers me and this is my outlet. Oh yeah. Um, well what I really liked about going to Columbia was that we had really good student insurance. And so yeah. for the first time I was able to afford therapy and it really helped. Dr. Lee, if you're listening, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> And she was just really, really helpful. Um, and then actually I found with the Me Too movement, that was really powerful for a lot of reasons. And one mm-hmm. thing was that I had been assaulted by an ex-boyfriend in my 20s. And, mm-hmm. you know, of course my friend ta- told my close friends and talked about it, but there were a lot of close friends, especially mutual friends, who were just like, oh, well, yeah, he says it didn't really happen. And I was like, yeah, I know, but it's not like a he said, she said, you know me, I'm not a, like yeah. lying. And it was like, yeah, we talked to him about it, but he just got really upset. You know, just all those classic, like, narcissist just the, tricks. That, inter- oh, just, and also internalized misogyny yes. and internalized, like, yes. you know, 
God, and we can bring so, that too so to so film sorry. directing because I do feel there's a lot of that on set that I really? really feel in ways I'm like, whoa, this feels like not the rest of the world. It's just so right. internalized. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I think that we're we're all kind of, or I, I should say, I, from my perspective, I think that we're all sort of coached very early on, on in like how to not make men angry. And, yeah. you know, when you're on a set, it's totally normal for, you know, the grip or the camera guy or whoever it is to express their frustrations. But the minute you do it, even though you're the one running the show. Yeah. It's a whole different vibe. Yeah. And so it's like even, yeah, on a set, I imagine, I, w- I want you to talk more about that, like how, how or if you want to, but like how you yeah. can kind of manage, you know, that internalized misogyny and when you feel yeah. it coming up in yourself and what do you do? Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's also really within a lot of the women. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also just being a leader and asking for things. And so I found if I just said things in a flat tone because I was exhausted and that's what I could muster, it could be taken as, well, that's not nice. Right. There was so much pressure to be nice about everything and managing everyone's emotions. And I am a sensitive person. I want to do it. Trust me. I want to get my codependency on and jump in there. (laughs) (laughs) But I can't. I have a lot of tasks to do. So um, one thing that I would say a lot was, I think it's really important to talk to people, not about them, which is unkind. Yes. And it's really hard to do even for myself because we want Mm -hmm. to vent. But I think what I would do on my next film is just have meetings every morning, even like just those check-ins. And there's so much pressure, just like jump in, go, we're already behind. This is going on. Like there's always fires put out when you get there. But I think just having those, those meetings, making sure everyone's good, checking in, that would go a long way. Oh, completely. Yeah. And it's it's yeah. some that's the kind of thing that you don't really or you can't really learn in school. You know, you have to learn it boots on the ground. And so it's like this, you know, this idea that you're still learning on a set always, I think, yeah. is important, too, because a lot of young filmmakers especially kind of feel like I have to do it perfectly. I have to get in there and know exactly what's going on. And that's not the case. Like you said, there needs to no. be check ins. There needs to be. A, a space for you to learn what works best for you and yeah. how you work best. Absolutely. And and it's so much about leadership, right? And that's not something you learn at film school. And exactly. if you're, you know, I'm like, I love my, I'm also a recluse. I'm also an introvert. I have some extroversion, but I like, I want to just wake up, have coffee and be in like a little room all day. So, exactly. <laughs> you know, so getting to set where it's like, you don't get, if you are an introvert, it is really hard to not be overwhelmed by how much needs to come out and how much communication there is. So I find that challenging. And then the leadership aspect, same with sports. I like snowboarding. I like tennis. I like I like those one-on-one. So team sports, I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, like maybe if you have a great team, but what if you don't like your team? Or part exactly. people, you know, what do you do? So that's, oh, but you have God. to know that. And time management, it's all about time management too. So those are the things I feel like so many people are like, I want to be a director. Like, do you though? Do you want to be a director? <laughs> <laughs> Ah, you you know, might, but do you yeah. know this? <laughs> it's not It's not like what it looks like, I think. You think of all those directors who just die young. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. Yes. Like, and they like yeah. drink themselves to death. Yeah. And they're just, I mean, it's it's intense. It's an yeah. intense process. Even when you're doing your own work, that's the other thing. It does. It's not like this only comes up to play when there's, like when you're directing someone else's words or yeah. ideas. Like it's no matter what, it's a hard process. I'm glad that you've, you've yeah. found a way to kind of, balance that out for yourself and reclaim reclaim some time. I'm a big fan of when I'm working on a set, 
I'd kind of shut down at a certain point in the day and I expect everyone else to as well. So I'll just say, you know, like I'm not, I don't take emails after 9 p.m. Yeah. And there's no, there's no emergency that can't be addressed the next day. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's good to protect, protect your time. It is. And I, you know, my best friend, Jen, uh, she's a OBGYN. And we've best friends since we were 10. And she, um, so I talked to her and I'd be like, how are you at work today? Oh, how's that? It was great. It was hard. How are, how are you today? Oh, it's good. Like I had this woman like almost like bleed out today or, <laughs> or like this. And I'm like, whoa, like you literally are working with life and death. We just think we are on set. Like, and of course there's safety. You are like responsible <laughs> for lives, but the crises is... are not life and death generally, but you feel they are. Yeah. So it's no, like, that's actually right? a great perspective. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, very necessary perspective. <laughs> yes. Like, it's okay the generators didn't start. It's okay. <laughs> no, it, we'll, we'll, we'll work it out. It will yeah. work it all out yes. for sure. It's like yeah. you said, it's not life and death. It might be like we spend a couple thousand more bucks, but somebody will have it. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Yeah. Or, or we'll miss that scene. Yeah. And you live with it forever. Exactly. That's <laughs> <laughs> living with regrets should be the title of every director's memoir. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, maybe that's a good segue then, because I want to ask you a little bit about how like you grew up with film and like what were some early films that you watched maybe before you wanted to become a director that made you want to direct movies or just be in the movies? You know, I think it was so subconscious because I had no idea I could ever be a director living growing up in Alberta. Like who thinks they do that, especially in the 90s. And definitely like I didn't see any women. So I just it wasn't even on my radar. And so Mm -hmm. even when I went to film school, I was like, well, I love writing. I love photography. I love filming all this stuff. I could do well things if I put my my heart into them. So I think I could do it. But I was still like, but you couldn't be the director. Like, how do you even do that? So I felt like I kind of just backed in, like <laughs> kind of backing in, like, oh, I like that. And then even the first year at film school, I was like, oh, I couldn't do the directing. But I think when I saw Andrea Arnold's Fish Tank. Oh, uh, that yeah. movie was so monumental for so many of us. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Huge. It mu- Yeah. And I think now so many things are like it that we forget how unique that was Mm -hmm. but I think when she just captured that sense of like yearning and sexuality in that character that felt like I was like I've never seen that shown the way I felt it as a teenager thank you for those shots of Michael Fassbender thank you (laughs) the introduction to Michael Fassbender (laughs) alone but and truly and I never before I saw that film I never really felt the sense of danger that is kind of conveyed with not just in the character, but around the character. And I'm like, yeah, being a teen girl is fucking hard. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. And the the way she showed that, I I think it just was like, oh, I could show something from what my past or my world. It it gave me that sort of, I guess, step. And then in my house, you know, as kind of somewhat of a latchkey kid, my mom was single mom and is a doctor. So she just works like she worked a lot. So I was allowed yeah. to just watch a lot of TV. I'd say I was more like a TV kid. Yeah. But then on the weekends, yeah, yeah we used to rent too. a VHS because we didn't have mm-hmm. the player. Yeah. Take it home yep. in the box. <laughs> <laughs> big night. Yeah. yeah the, the video, video store. store. Big you night. Rent yeah. the you whole thing. Yeah. Rent the whole thing. <laughs> and recording movies. Um, 
when we did get a VHS player, then recording them off TV. So I've got like my copy of Beaches, which has all the commercials still from like 89. Oh <laughs> when it was on. Those it. intense like Nestle commercials yeah. that were like, yes. wow, you guys, what was going on in the 80s where every commercial was like so passionate? <laughs> He's so passionate. <laughs> really want us eating that chocolate. <laughs> well, but you I also, think, like you yeah. mentioned too, that um, like, again, this comes directly from your bio, but I wanted to, this is like kind of a nice way to get into this part of the conversation as well, is that you mentioned that that your your background is, is Matisse, like you have on your yeah. father's side. And you really honor that in your films. And, you know, as a filmmaker, I feel like you're very cognizant of being on tribal lands and like you're, it's just very, very specifically cool. Um, but it also made me wonder that, you know, I think that you're being Canadian and being, you know, like living in a place and making films in a place that doesn't necessarily expect for you to be the filmmaker. It kind of gives you an openness that allows you to tell the stories you want to tell. And it seems like you live in a place, and I could be wrong, but it seems like you live in a place that actually is starting to support filmmakers more. And so I'm wondering, like, how does, like, the Canadian or Edmonton or Albertan scene kind of support marginalized filmmakers or people who never, in ways that Hollywood never would? Yeah, it's a really big movement in Canada right now. And we are that's part of why I moved back, nice. um, was because there's support for filmmakers here and for artists. And, you know, I'm always aware with any government funding, it can leave at any time when a new mm-hmm. government comes in, they can cut funding a lot. But there's some pretty substantial funding agencies like Telefilm is a big one. So we were funded right. through the Indigenous stream of Telefilm, oh. which is a really, really cool process. And there's such an amazing Indigenous filmmakers in Canada right now who are getting a platform and getting funded and coming out with just like amazing work. Oh which is really cool. And then on a provincial level, we have city grants. And so I guess that'd be more municipal level, but there are municipal and provincial grants. And they often do have indigenous streams and they are definitely prioritizing like people of color, people with disabilities, just people who haven't, who've been cut out. They're like making sure that they get to the front of the line. That is truly incredible because as you know, we live in America where that is not only not happening, but people are rallying against it happening. Yeah. <laughs> like they are cutting funding so left crazy. and right. And I think it's I think it's really special that you're that you're now able to model to other people who may want to be in who love movies or love this side of the business and don't know how to get into it. You're able to model that like you can do that from where you live. You can do it with support at a government level, at a municipal level, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be making the next. Like you can make a short film. You can. Make, I just. I love yeah. that your 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 career and your current approach and your you know kind of every step of the way. You're really modeling for people like how to just start where you are and do yeah. what you can with your own stories. It's really beautiful. Oh, uh, thank you, and I hope so. I hope that you know. I think with filmmaking, especially, you just have to make films. And it's so humbling and so hard at first, especially if you're good at one thing and then you go and try to make your first film, it will probably be really bad, (laughs) (laughs) unless you're just that lucky person or that genius. Like, But for most of us, it's like so embarrassing because (laughs) it doesn't look like what it was in your head and you don't know how to do it. But every time you do it, even if it's just on your iPhone, you could do something really, really great and learn so much just from doing it, doing it, doing it. And then I think you know, it's it's kind of like about what kind of career you want to have. And I want to talk to you guys because one of the things I like on the pod that you talk about is like leaving LA. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? Because I, I have been told by people too, it's like for your career, you have to get back there 
you have to go here. And I'm like, oh, but you know, I like my healthcare here. Yeah. <laughs> I like my community here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I have a house. Like I couldn't have that there. Exactly. So no, I think I mean I'll speak for speaking for myself. I definitely had a lot of people in my circle and also like on my team. Like, but no one no one ever said don't do that. But they were all kind of like, okay, well, let's see what this means for your career now that you don't live anywhere, <laughs> like at yeah. all. And I'm like, yeah. I kind of don't care because I think you have to be a little bit like sometimes you're part of the vanguard and you just kind of need to. But God, I hate that I said that because I'm thinking of that fucking weird cult dude. That Keith Raniere guy. Keith Rainier. Oh my God, I can't believe I just used that word. But it's true. That sometimes you. Have... Hey, it existed before he showed up. He just called himself. But that. sometimes you you yeah. have to kind of prioritize. I think you, I'm only able to make good work if I'm prioritizing myself and I'm in a good place. So if I can't yeah. do that in LA or or in a, any other city, then I'm not going to do that. And I think that you know it's 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 more. I think it's moving more in a direction where I think more people are able to say, I want to be able to live well and be at peace and have calm. And that is where I want to work from. Like, that's where I want to create from. So I think, I don't think it's necessary to, to live in those places, especially if it's possible for you to travel to them. Like if you're physically able Mm -hmm. to and financially able to, you can just travel there when you need to do your meetings or when you need to do, you know, but that's like, what, a month or two out of a production. And then the rest of the time, 10 months of the year, you get to live where you want. (laughs) And do what you want. So I think it's it's a lot of women, especially, I think, are are kind of carving that path and just saying, I'm not willing to suffer anymore in these places that don't support me in order to fit this mold. Like we're just we're making a new path. So, yeah, I think it's it's again, it's inspiring and cool and necessary to see people like you, like us, who are able to work outside of the kind of binary that's been set. Because I don't think that's I don't think that binary is the future. I don't think it's New York, L.A. is the future. And my, you know, yeah. my, and you also have to look at, you know, you look at films that are made in other countries and like filmmakers who are working in France and in Spain and all these different places. And they're able to do it and they're able to get it done like this. We have to kind of stop thinking of this monolith, this monstrous machine that we're all tied to as the only way, because I don't think it is. Yeah, it's not. But speaking of monstrous machines and monoliths, I have one more question Mm -hmm. before we get into something very fun. What is the grossest thing you saw during your six years in New York City? (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) It's like, I think I probably have blocked out the grossest thing. But I think it was actually other senses. Um, When I was living in student housing in Columbia, there were these rats who lived in, or I think they were rats who lived in the walls. Oh, yeah, they were rats. So, you know, they come, (laughs) they were rats. They sounded like dogs from their body weight, but they were so fast because I could hear them like scurrying. So you'd have like the exterminator come, you know, on the first. Oh my God. But then whatever their breeding cycle is by like the second and a half week, they're back. Exactly. And they are living a crazy chaotic life. (laughs) Like, I don't know if they're on drugs, they're partying, (laughs) they're having rain, chasing each other, screaming. (laughs) Yeah. And they would be like scurrying, but sometimes like, so I'd be in my bed and on the wall behind me, they'd be like, 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 Oh, four inches from my head. God, it's the worst feeling in yes. the world. Like yes. nothing will d- dismantle your sense of safety more than like, oh yeah, there's like three inches of plaster <laughs> keeping you from this yeah. rat who can easily chew through three inches of plaster. 
and then chew out my eyes. Exactly. Like, <laughs> Oh yeah, that's that's properly disgusting. That's properly disgusting. Yeah, I think that and the cockroaches. One time I uh, moved into a new place, and Ugh. it was just one of those places. Like no matter what you did, what the exterminator like did, they come. I don't know if they're really coming, but I would have things installed, keep it so clean, and then just like turn on the light, and it's like yep. scatter, and you're like, oh, there is kitchen. If you live in a building in New York, like you need to live in a single solitary house to even start to combat the problem. If you live in a building and anyone has roaches, all of you have roaches. <laughs> Like it yes. never goes away. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's just oh, too much. And we don't have that in Alberta. Like there's no rats here and no no cockroaches really. Yeah. This sounds like oh my God. the perfect yeah. place. <laughs> I know. Forget what I just said. I'm moving. But I'm we moving have eight there. months of winter. <laughs> I'll take it if I don't well. have to see a rat or a roach ever again. I'll take yeah, it. No, it's nice. It's nice. Oh my God. That part is nice. Love, that was kind of cool about Alaska too, where I was like, oh, Alaska's tough, but it's so cold that I have never, I haven't seen a snake here. And I like that. Yeah. (laughs) That's great for me. Uh, Final, final question, because I'm just so curious about this in general, but specifically with you, what is a question that you wish people asked you in interviews that they never ask? I think which filmmakers, what am, who is, who are my favorite filmmakers and what am I taking from what they do? Ooh, and what is that answer? Yes. Just give us like one. <laughs> I think, well, I really, I say Douglas Sirk. Yes. I mean, yes. you just rocketed yourself into Millie's heart. And mine, for sure. Of course. <laughs> you said the secret password. Just like, so like, he just goes for it. Yeah. Oh, it's that is so very beautiful. Cool. I can see some Douglas Sirk in Dark Nature. Like, I can see the, first of all, you know, with all that heaven allows, it's very snowy and mountainous and there's all those like Mm -hmm. great outdoor shots. So, and and your film, Dark Nature, takes place primarily outdoors, I would say. Absolutely. So you've got that going. I've got, I see it. I am low budget Douglas Sirk. That is my (laughs) my sweet (laughs) business card made for you. I wouldn't have thought that, by the way. It looks like that's the thing about Dark Nature that's so like it's beautiful, really well done. It's Mm. incredibly well done, and looks great. And like the landscapes and everything, like uh, it just was such a joy to watch. I mean, it's like such a good film. So I wouldn't have thought low budget at all. Let's just yeah, we were we weren't like shoestring, but we were like you know, but it um like. Yeah. We're tense at times, you know, we don't have, like trailers, yeah. but I think just uh, color, like having really saturated mm-hmm. color was really important yeah. to me. And then my costume designer, Jennifer Crichton, she's so such an amazing artist as well. And so we were just like, all right, this is what the colors are going to be at this time of year. So what uh, should the costumes be to yeah. work with these tones, like work with what you have, which is, it's fun. That's it's beautiful. a nice parameter, right? Yeah. Um, and it works. So, so well. I love that. Yeah. And then just the emotion. Like, just being like, let's have some emotion. Let's have big feelings. I want big feelings. Oh, especially between Joy and Carmen and just seeing that, like, you know, that the way that, you know, uh, yeah, just seeing that Carmen kind of has that scene where she says, and I don't want to ruin the movie for anyone who hasn't seen it, but that, that scene where she kind of explores the importance of friendship versus the importance of salvaging her own sense of peace and comfort. It's, I have never seen anything like that on screen, and it was really beautifully pra- played out because it wasn't played out with a sense of... 
um, dismissal or like she was saying, you know, fuck you, forget it. She really was a kind of exploring it throughout this whole trip. So all the layers that you have going on with the emotional lives of these characters and some of those shots, especially when they're first hiking in and, you know, they're kind of, you've got this great sense of movement, I think, with the camera as well, because you're kind of behind them as they're going through these big, <laughs> these big cavernous, canyonous, canyon-filled places. It's just, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. I love it. I am really excited because we have never had a guest that brought <laughs> a game to the podcast. Like, Danielle and I are always coming up with our own, like, weird little <laughs> games that only make sense to us. And the idea that you right out the gate were like, I got a game for you guys <laughs> is so exciting. So... I, I want it, Berkeley, I want you to explain like what the game is to okay. everybody. So I love watching Pretty Woman. I, yes. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a perfect movie for a lot of problems it has, but um, it really did inspire me for a career. No, it didn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> didn't. Oh, God. JK, JK. So I was watching it, and then I was going through right now, you know, they have the erotic thrillers on Criterion mm -hmm. and Karina Longworth doing the, the oh, series. Yeah. So I'm going through those, and I watched Dream Lover, and I hadn't seen it before. And as I was watching it, I was like, wait. Is that Jason? I was like, oh my God, the Jason Alexander character in Pretty Woman. It's like the same character played by Larry Miller in Dream Lover. And I'm like, they even sound the same. And it's almost this old time. Is it James wow. Kegney? Is yeah. that the name? Where it's like, hey, you like, it's like this yes. old time. Like, I'm like, what oh, is yeah. this voice? Like 1930s gangster voice. We talk about it a lot on the podcast. It's like, it's yeah. like that. I was like, okay. And then even sometimes they were saying things that were like the same thing. Really? I was like, that guy could have said that. Yeah. There's actually, I didn't put it huh. into the game because the audio was a strange quality on Dream Lover. But they each say the line, feel the burn. <gasps> That there has to be a story what? behind that. <laughs> yeah, one the, in the Dream Lover, it's like when there's that home video section, and it's like he's looking at her legs. Oh, my and God. and then he's like, "Feel the burn!" <laughs> and then uh, Jason Alexander character says it in Peter Woman. She's someone's doing something. She's like, "Ha feel the burn." <laughs> okay. Wow. There's always like maybe there was like a stock. <laughs> creep checklist going around Hollywood around this era, like early, late 80s, early 90s, being like, if you're a creep, if you're a doughy creep in a film, you have to say, feel the burn. That's fascinating. I love that and you, then you turned it into out. a game. So, so the game is, well, is you is want like, us to guess yes. who's saying the line? Or who's saying? Yes. Because then when I realized that, incredible. and it was right yeah. after you guys said I could come on the pod, I was like, you know who would like this? <laughs> You know, like this, so I'm going to make it a game. <laughs> yes! So we've made it a game where you have to hear an audio clip. Okay. And then decide, is it Jason Alexander from Pretty Woman 1990, written by Gary Marshall, in playing the role of Philip, the creepy lawyer? Or is it the creepy other kind of business guy, <laughs> dream lover? <laughs> From 1993, so this one came after, so he could be doing an homage. We, yes. you know, I'm not going to rule that out. Larry Miller as Norman. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And I will say Ooh. the game, I almost, it, it's, there's a bit of, um, you know, Jason Alexander, because of his time on Seinfeld, it's such an iconic voice. So it's really hard not to hear him. 
But, but I do think there's some little moments sure. maybe challenged. And Larry Miller was pretty <laughs> omnipresent in the 80s, too. So he's kind of always at the back of my head when I think of Jason Alexander. So this is the perfect game. Yes. Okay. All right, let's do it. Let's do this. I know. I'm, like, put my, I'm putting my ear right <laughs> okay. to the speaker. So we'll start, we'll start by just giving you a sample. And we'll start with Larry Miller as Norman. So okay. I'll just call him Norman. Do we have sample one of Larry Miller? Let's hear it. Anorexics. Yes. Dark, angelic, anorexics. They're 33 years old. The biological clocks are tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Come now. I'm ovulating. <laughs> Excellent. that's larry miller and now sample for jason alexander philip hi i'm philip stuckey edward lewis's lawyer hey where's the guest of honor anyway well if i know him he's probably off in a corner somewhere charming a very pretty lady that is wild yeah that's like the same (laughs) dude guy like (laughs) yeah i have so much compassion for women who were like dating in that era now (laughs) (laughs) oh my god they, the no odds were shit. stacked. The odds were stacked against them. Okay, so now we've got the two distinct okay. guys. Like, we've got the Jason Alexander and the Larry Miller. So now you're going to just play a clip, and we have to decide, yeah. is it Jason or Larry? Yeah, I have five rounds. Okay, and- beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> Ooh, beautiful. And you, uh, yeah, so, and I've mixed them up within each round. So oh, my gosh. Let's hear round okay. one. There's a little gap in between them. Walk away. Hey, forget it, pal. We got a thousand man hours in on this. I am down on my knees. I am begging you. This is so much harder than I thought it would be. <laughs> I think the first oh one God. is Larry Miller. The second one is Jason Alexander. Okay. Millie? <laughs> I think it's swapped. I think it's Jason first, then Larry. Millie. <gasps> no way! I, you got wait, it right, Are you saying Millie. I got it right? Ha! <laughs> <laughs> what point yes! are you? <laughs> yes! <laughs> Okay, that was rough, by the way. That was like, that. I, I thought I was going to be like, oh, this is going to be easy. And I'm like, mm, actually, that was rough. Wow. All right. One All right, point for Millie. Right. Winner gets a trip to Canada. Okay. Yes. yes. Winner gets to move into your house. Yay. Yes. <laughs> no rats, no Come roaches. Come on down. Okay, round two. Forget that. I'm trying to tell you something. I invited a girl there, brunette, Midwest, so forth. Perfect for you. Who, who is this girl you're going with? All right, I think it's Larry and then Jason. Larry first, then Jason. I would agree with that. Both right. Yeah! <laughs> Yay! Okay. Okay. Oh, my God. Round three. Round Keep three. Going. Oh, my God. Where are you going? Did he sign this? No, he said he had to leave. It's Wednesday. I got my Wednesday afternoon golf game, and I'm out here with a mobile phone trying to track down some chicks. Oh, God, that's hard. Wow, this is tough. This is tough. This is probably the hardest one. Yeah. All right, I think Jason, Larry. Okay. I, I think Larry, Jason. Danielle. Yeah! <laughs> what? <laughs> no! What? We're and I don't know why. We're I don't know why, because that was hard. I like, that was yes. a hard one. That was a hard one because of the golf game. I like yeah. how his whole thing is like, I'm out here with a mobile phone. I'm like, can you believe it? <laughs> <laughs> So, so we've each so we got one yeah. right together and then we each okay, got neck yeah. and neck okay. neck okay. and neck okay neck round neck. four hey buddy I have to tell you that is a beautiful piece of ass does she like have any sisters friends <laughs> fourth cousin anything I, uh, I see some differences in you this week like the tie and uh, I'm wondering if maybe this girl isn't the difference 
trick. It feels like this, <laughs> like, I want to say it's both Jason for some, but it's not. I think it's Larry Jason. All right, let me think, let me think. Uh, I think it's Larry Jason as well. Both right. Yeah! <laughs> Holy shit! I, I got through that one by the skin of my teeth. I was, like, certain that it both was Jason Alexander, and you were just yes, throwing it Yes, I again. would like to throw you a curveball, wow. but I didn't. That, the, even just, like, what the wow. character's saying. It's like, exactly. I like, you know. Yeah. I know. Wow. It's, fuck, this is fascinating. It's so you have to crazy. come back, do this all the time, and come back and give us this game. <laughs> oh, we'll only play yeah. this game with you. We will only play this all game. All right, I'll keep on the So lookout. we have one more. One more. Right? And this could... De- we're we're yeah. tied. Am I right? We're You're tied? tied. You're tied. This could decide it all, it. baby. <laughs> For Canada. What the hell is wrong with you this week? She looks really great. Very, very great. And I'll be honest with you. Yes. No, I won't. Jason Larry. Okay. I'm going to say Jason Larry as well. Both right. Oh, my God! Yes! <laughs> we both tied! We tied! <laughs> Oh, my, okay. You guys are on the same I have to page. Say, they sounded identical. Completely by the, the same. Way. Like, this is wild. I, I had never thought this. This is a. I love it. I feel like there must have been something with Dream Lover. They were like, yeah, that, like, take the element from Pretty Woman. Watch that guy. And then just be that. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're already there. Just like, be you're that. already balding, exactly. doughy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the final piece of trivia to blow your minds. Larry Miller is in Pretty Woman. Wow! Is he really? He is the shopkeeper. <gasps> That's right! How much money are you going to spend? Wow. An obscene amount. How obscene? Really obscene. I like him so much. Wow. Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> you you might have to go back to Columbia and write a thesis or Sincerely. something like this. Like I, this is actually fascinating. I had no idea. Wow. And I wanted to get that clip of that, uh, of Larry Miller in Pretty Woman as the bonus round, but it was too clear it was right. from Pretty Woman. He had no dialogue that sounded like Jason Alexander. That's the thing, his accent changes exactly. a lot, Larry Miller. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, this is beautiful. Good job, that guys. so much fun. We have to have you back on. Anytime you, you want oh to gosh. come on, anytime you make a film, we're having you as a guest. You're an absolute dream. And yes. we're moving to Canada. We're moving to specifically your house. So get everyone ready. <laughs> uh, yes. and I was please. actually here to recruit you. So yeah, I oh, will yeah. make my Done. government report. They'll be happy. Yes. Done. <laughs> Anytime I meet a Canadian, I'm like, sign me up. Sign me the fuck up. Um, please, to our listeners, don't forget that you can start watching Dark Nature in theaters on May 19th. And May 23rd, it'll be streaming, so you can watch it everywhere, and you should. Thank you so much, Berkeley Brady. You're the greatest. You guys are the greatest. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Thank you so much. Beautiful. Thanks for getting me through the shoot. (laughs) Again, happy to do it. We'll do individual (laughs) Just like a morning 10-minute pump-up pod. (laughs) I need it. I need it. Thank you. Oh, my God, Danielle, that uh, was so great. We love Berkeley so much. Um, her film, Dark Nature, was seriously amazing. Um, I haven't been that excited to see a horror movie in a while. So I know. I know. I and again, just that kind of, that genre-bending element. And it's it should be out streaming right now. So please, please, please go watch it. Yes. Well, listen, we have a theme this week. Speaking of dark... <laughs> mm. uh, 
why don't you set it up? Tell people what the theme is. Um, our theme this week is Tea is for Trauma, and it's a Father's Day special. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, you got me laughing. <laughs> no, please keep it in. Okay. That's what's happening. Um, <laughs> Father's Day is coming up, and it's also going to be my birthday. My birthday sometimes coincides with Father's Day. Mm. And I never met my father, but I also just have a real uneasy feeling about dads in general. I hear you. They're fucking sus. Yeah. I, ha- I have sus. one, and I think he's sus. <laughs> we talked about this last year. <laughs> your, <laughs> your dad might have killed. He's in the military. <laughs> He could have been this dude, and he could have been the great Santini in the military. We don't know. Look, I, you know, I picked this movie for a reason. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're just exploring all the ways that fathers can potentially traumatize their children in film this yeah. week to celebrate. Celebrate? Question mark. Father's Day. <laughs> yeah. And sp- and speaking of Larry Miller and Jason Alexander <laughs> in the nineties, like your film is like one of the what OG erotic thrillers maybe yep. might be the the one and i hadn't seen it in a few years and i w- like seeing it through the lens of the theme i was like t is for the fuck is wrong with this guy like <laughs> You know, oh, we, like, <laughs> and we will get into it because I've I've broken my film down to his mistakes and her trauma. Yes, a hundred percent. Um, I'm so excited to talk about these movies. Do you want? I'm going first, right? Yeah. Okay. So my movie for the theme T is for trauma is a movie from 1979. It was based on the book of the same name by Pat Conroy. It was written and directed by Louis John Carlino, and it's called The Great Santini. You may not have the privilege of serving under the meanest, toughest, screaming squadron commander in the Marine Corps. Me. Um. Okay, so I'm going to do a one-sentence synopsis right off the bat so everybody knows what the hell I'm about to talk about. The teenage son of an aggressive, competitive, and poisonously masculine Marine Corps pilot stationed in South Carolina in 1962, tries to survive and understand his complicated and dysfunctional father. Beautiful. All right. So the director, Louis John Carlino, he had a hand in a lot of movies that I really like. Okay, so he wrote the screenplay for Seconds with Rock Hudson, which we love here on the pod. Is Louis John Carlino okay in general? Like, was he okay? <laughs> I mean, is he? Because he not only did Seconds, but he also wrote the screenplay for The Fox, which Ooh. is a movie that I've been wanting to do on the podcast for a while. He also did, if we ever do a Will Buchan would clear that right up theme again, I would definitely want to play I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. I don't know oh, if anybody's damn. ever s- seen that movie. He wrote that movie. Okay, truly, is he okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he wrote and directed The Great Santini, which, you know, as you probably know, comes from a very famous book by the Southern writer Pat Conroy. And if you listened to the now unlocked bonus episode where I went batshit crazy for over an hour about the Prince of Tides, which I... I That came up on the feed, obviously, recently, and I was like, what the fuck is wrong with me? (laughs) You know that I'm a fan 
of Pat Conroy. You know, I spent my childhood in the low country of South Carolina, Berkeley County, and I love stories that take place there. So Grace Santini also takes place there. Now, Daniel, I want to talk to you about this a little bit because I know that you have written, obviously, a book about your family. So I'm kind of curious your on your take about this. So The Great Santini, the book, was published in 1976, and it was about Pat Conroy's actual father, right? And I was doing research for the episode, and I got completely fucking derailed this one night because I was, like, reading about what happened to Pat Conroy when this book was published, right? Mm. And, you know, I honestly, like, right before I started reading it, I thought to myself, listen, if I know Southern people... They do not want their business being put on the street like this. And of course, as I was reading, I was like, oh, his family life got turned completely upside down when this book came out, right? Really? Yeah. I I wondered if, did you have any experience with that? Like, you know, with people in your family, you know, did they read the book? Did they talk to you about it? Did they knew they were being written about, obviously, because you talked to them about it. But I just wanted to know what would that was like for you. Mm-hmm. I some people have asked me this before, and it's usually people who are like, "I want to write a memoir, but I don't yeah. know if I can say this about my family." And I will say that for me, the only way to go into writing a book about your family and about your own life is first focus on yourself and your experiences. You're not, you can't please everyone. You can't tell every side of the story, but also they know what they fucking did. Yeah. They know what they fucking did. So (laughs) like, sorry about it, but (laughs) you know what you did. So I had no problem writing about my life and my experiences. And I I definitely, the only person in my family that I let read a, a first draft was my brother. And because he read it and because we were kind of, you know, side by side for a lot of our experiences. Yeah. And um, he would tell me things like, oh, yeah, like this story, this thing that you wrote about made me think of this thing that happened and this thing that happened. And they were fascinating, but it was his experience. Like there were things that I wasn't part of. So I'm like, all right, well, then you should write a book or you should, you know, I can't write that experience. I wasn't there. Right. And my mom was pissed. My mom was pissed when my book came out. And I think it's partially, we've never really, we only talked about it once, but I think it's partially that, that kind of don't tell our business, like you were saying, like kind of. Yeah. Can't believe you told our business. But then part of it is that, like, my mom, you know, I told the truth about my mom, and it's not pretty. And yeah. a lot of people, you know, she's still in the area, and a lot of people she went to high school with or that she's known for a long time now look at her with different eyes, maybe. But yeah. again, that's not my fucking problem. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's not my my story to tell. It's not my part of my life. So I think that it's yeah. possible for these kinds of books to upend your family life. But it depends on what kind of relationship you have with your family to begin with. My relationship with my family is that I've always been very direct with them about the ways they fucked me up. Yeah. So this is none of this was a surprise to them. Yeah. Well, that's, that's fascinating that you say that because it pretty much is what Pat Conroy said, I think, mm-hmm. based on, like, all the articles and stuff that I read about him. So... This is this to me is mind blowing because I'm just I was just so curious about this. So there was an article in the Dallas Morning News um, that had mentioned that Pat Conroy's like all of his like grandparents and his aunts and his uncles they picketed his book events because they were like we don't like this gossip. What the hell? And again, Southern people, you know what I'm talking <laughs> about. But then here are like two other fascinating things about it. So you know, Pat Conroy's mother was married to the great Santini, essentially, for years and years and years, all throughout their childhood. And she actually left him 
when the book came out. And <gasps> according to what Pat Conroy said, during the trial, she gave the judge a copy of the book as proof as to why she was leaving him. During their divorce proceedings? Yes. That's inc- you, That's a side effect you never intend. Props <laughs> to everyone involved. Props yes. to everyone involved. That's incredible. I know. Such crazy shit. And then the thing that I think rocked me the most, right, is because, you know, like you mentioned, like his his dad was alive when The Great Santini was published. Right. And in that Dallas Morning News article, it said that apparently the dad read the book. Of course, at the very big, like afterwards, immediately, mad as hell. Then he apparently cried a bunch. And then he apparently disappeared for a few days. And everybody <gasps> was thinking, that's it. It's They, they were like, he, maybe he's going to kill himself. We don't know where he is. You know, that kind of stuff. He came back. And then at some point after that, he completely got into the book. And he actually had great Santini license plates made for his car. So he was driving around town with great Santini license plates. And then he started signing the books alongside his son. So he was like totally owning it, owning the fame of it. And then according to what Pat Conroy said, like later in life, he actually got much kinder and was like apparently this incredible grandpa to his grandkids and shit. So I'm like, wow. That is incredible. He's like, yep, I was that asshole. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and this is the, I mean, going back to the theme, like it's just this, I mean, this is all just mind-blowing stuff to me. Um, Yeah. Very therapeutic. Yeah. And honestly, like if you ever get the chance like to just read interviews or listen to interviews with Pat Conroy talking about all this stuff, because he wrote about his family his entire life. So, you know, it's just that thing where you're like, I think you and him have very similar thoughts about like what your role is as a writer and writing about people who are still alive and people, you know, in your family. So anyway, I just thought that was interesting. And then- you know, to bring it back to the film, when they decided to make a movie of the book a few years later, you know, apparently Pat Conroy's parents were totally enchanted by, you know, movie making, of course. And they came to hang out with like Blythe Danner and Robert Duvall, who played them in the film. And so it's just fascinating stuff. Fascinating. They're like, oh, we hated this until you brought Hollywood to to the table. Uh, you know... <laughs> Ain't that the way it goes sometimes. Michael so, O'Keefe is very charming. Oh, he, we we are going to talk about him. I obsessed, obsessed with him in this film. So if you've never heard of this book or never had seen the movie, um, you know, I hadn't seen it. I didn't see it when I was a kid. I saw it much later in life. And I didn't know the book until I saw the movie. Okay. I... I thought it w- I didn't realize it was going to be a family drama. Honestly, I thought it was going to be about like a magician or something. I mean, you think about the great Santini, you're like, what is this? Is this about like <laughs> some some magician? A baseball player. <laughs> yeah. But apparently I'm not alone. And a lot of people thought similarly, like they didn't know what the great Santini, the film was about. And apparently it hurt the film at the box office because people just didn't see it. Oh, and damn. here's a quote that I'm going to read from Pat Conroy because he there was an interview with him on Fresh Air in like the late 80s. And he wanted to talk about why it was named this. And he's and this is his quote. He says, quote, I did not explain this in the book at all, but my father modestly referred to himself as the great Santini when we were growing up. And he took it. I later learned he had seen a high wire aerialist when he was a boy and he was up doing acrobatics in his airplane. And when he came down, 
One time, when he was a young lieutenant, he said, I was better than the great Santini today. And some of the other pilots heard it, and the nickname stuck. So the great Santini was how he liked being referred to by his children. He would line up his seven children, and there was this ritual where we'd all go through, and he would say, who's the greatest of them all? And we, the seven, would say, oh, you are great Santini. And he would say, who knows all, hears all, and sees all. Oh, you do, oh, great Santini. So this was the ridiculous way I was raised. End quote. Trauma. (laughs) So now you know why this movie is called that. Now you know that the great Santini is an actual person, and it was Pat Conroy's actual father. Okay. So the film pretty much is centered around the great Santini. In the film, his real name is Bull Meacham, and he's played by Robert Duvall. We all know Robert Duvall. Now, the thing about Bull slash Great Santini is that he is 1962. He's a Marine pilot, and he's one of these, like, Marines who's, like, just one of these, like, legend kind of guys. Self-made, almost. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? He's obnoxious. He, He wants people to call him the Great Santini, his own children. Like, I think we know the kind of guy we're talking about. He's like a giant frat boy. He pulls pranks and he drinks a lot. And he's just sort of generally this ridiculous man who just lives and breathes military life, right? And so his family is is basically front row to this shit. Like, he calls his own family sports fans, And hogs. He calls his own family hogs, okay? And he makes them get up super-duper early, military style. And, you know, they they say the phrase, he's a warrior without a war, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the gist of it, is that he's this guy who's just constantly ready for battle. He's always on doing the military life, and he doesn't know how to separate it, and so he treats his family like people in his squad, you know? Yeah. So in the film, there are four kids instead of seven, uh, real life, in Pat Conroy's real life. So he's got two boys and two girls. And the oldest is this son, Ben, um, who is played by Michael O'Keefe. I love him. He's so good in this movie. He's so great. He kind of has this, like, Timothy Hutton and Ordinary People vibe to him, you think? Yeah. Yeah. Like very affected teen, disaffected teen. Yeah. And, you know, he's generally, of course, a much more sensitive, thoughtful boy than his dad wants him to be, right? Because his dad's like, you're going into the Marines right after college. And he's like, ugh, what if I don't want to? But it's a non-option. Like, he's got to go because his dad is the great Santini. He loves basketball. And it's that kind of thing where like, you know, he's just sort of like, he's balancing this whole thing of like wanting to please his father, but also knowing that he doesn't, he's not who his father actually wants him to be. And that is kind of the tension of the film, right? So he has this sister named Marianne around the same age as him. She's played by Lisa Jane Persky. And honestly, if y'all don't know who she is by name, like, look her up. She's a legend in her own right. There's a Blondie song written about her. So look her up. She's great. And then they've got, you know, two younger siblings. And then you've got his wife, the great Santini's wife, Blythe Danner, 
who, interestingly enough, was also in The Prince of Tides. So she's, she loves <laughs> Pat Conroy. <laughs> she loves Pat Conroy. Gwyneth Paltrow's mom is a, a Pat Conroy film adaptation staple. So here's the thing. At the beginning of the movie, they, he, they're they living, they move to Buford, South Carolina, and they actually rent this house in Buford that is title home, which is the house from The Big Chill. Mm-hmm. So it's shot in the same house, which I think is really cool. And, you know, it's basically like the kids have moved around a lot, especially... Marianne. She's like, I fucking hate Buford. I don't want to live here. And I'm like, girl, I know. I've been there. I've been there. Rolling into a town. (laughs) I'm like, no. (laughs) She took one look look at Toomer on his little wagon with his horse and she was like, fuck all this. Yeah. (laughs) She's like, I'm going to New York the minute I turn 18 and I'm never looking back. But, like, you know, so basically they're settling into their new life. And, like, you know, like I said, Ben is really into basketball and he's, like, playing his dad out in the driveway. And it's, like, this scene is really, like, it's a classic scene for one. I mean, it's been parodied many times. There was actually, like, um, a parody of it in Austin Powers when it was, like, Scott and Dr. Evil or something like that. I think that was in the first one. But... It's the scene of, like, basically Bull Meacham, like, playing one-on-one basketball with Ben and, like, fucking being too competitive and psycho. And he's, like, at some point, he bounces the ball off of his fucking head, his own son's head, and he's like, you're going to cry? Cry. You're going to cry? And that is, I think, the scene that's been parodied a lot. But mm-hmm. it's so dark. Like, in his entire family, is like, it goes from, like, fun to scary in like 2.5 seconds oh and scary for the whole family like is like everyone the mom siblings everyone's like on the verge of crying yeah because it's just it's so brutal (laughs) and and, and this is the thing is that he just doesn't know how to not be this person he doesn't know how to shut it off the great santini is too up his own ass to recognize that he's hurting members of his family And that he's a lot, you know? And the thing about Ben is that he knows that his dad is a dick. And he talks to his mom about it. And his mom, you know, obviously I feel she's probably indoctrinated having married, been married to this guy for so many years. But she also understands that, you know, Ben is, she gives him that space that I think Bull doesn't, right? She She's like, you're a sensitive, thoughtful person, I love that about you. Stay that way. You know, that kind of stuff, which I think gives him a little bit of, you know, he gets that support from her that he obviously doesn't get from him. Yeah, it's a good balance. That letter she writes for his birthday is really sweet. Oh, it's, yeah, I love that. I love that part. And then, you know, like Danielle said, at some point, Ben makes friends with a kid in town named Toomer, and he's the um, housekeeper's son. And he's also just like a really gentle guy that he loves his hunting dogs and fishing and you know he shows ben the you know marshes and stuff in the low country um but remember it's 1962 in the deep south and tumor is also brutally bullied by this fucking asshole kid named red pettis the local racist racist. yeah Mm -hmm. awful so but it's this this movie continues down this road where you know ben is is trying so hard to be himself, but also, you know, 
wanting to please his dad in some kind of way. And, uh, you know, he makes the bar- the varsity basketball team and, like, there's that whole basketball game scene, which also is very classic, where he gets shoved by one of the other players and the dad and Bull comes down on the court. And it's basically like, take his ass out. Like, do not get shoved by this player. You need to fight back. Or you're not allowed to come home, right? Mm-hmm. And so Ben goes against what his what is you know, what his senses and basically like breaks this kid's arm Mm -hmm. and it wrecks him. And he just can't like, you know, he just basically like, you know, followed his dad's orders as much as it was the wrong thing to do. And this, and this whole movie is centered around that is that basically like Ben trying to do what he wants, which he knows is the right thing, but also being terrified of his father. The ending of the film is very dramatic and it involves tumor. And there's a moment where for me, and I don't feel like this is really given in a way, but there's a moment where this very traumatic event happens. Okay. And the great Santini has the wrong read on it completely. Mm-hmm. And Ben goes against him. And then Basically, Bull sort of spirals out from this. He finally has has kind of figured out that maybe his approach is not always right, you know? And he goes out and gets trashed, as he always does. And the scene of Ben, who has to basically go get him on his mother's wishes, is the most poignant scene in this film for me because it's Mm -hmm. that moment where the son has to, in spite of all of this damage, all of this trauma, all of this bullshit that he's dealt with his dad forever, he has to conjure up this like iota of tenderness for him. And it just really touches me because it just, for Mm -hmm. me, it's that moment of like, you have had to deal with a difficult person your entire life and you really want to fucking have a boundary here. And then at the end of the day, it's like this person is broken and fucked up. And it's like comes from a generation of men who just were like that. And the idea that Ben has to be the bigger person just really, it really knocks me out. I just love that. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, this this film for me, I, I've seen it many times since the first time I saw it. And I just, you know, obviously a Father's Day classic. <laughs> Because it's a lot about fathers. It's if you're about, us. <laughs> if you're yeah. us, it's a Father's Day classic. Yeah, it's a Father's Day classic. I would say generally, though. I mean, it's a it's a it's a movie about dads. And yeah. you know, the idea that again it comes from a real person and you know, and again, I, I really encourage everybody to go out there and like read about uh Pat Conroy's life and about this real guy. And if you're a military brat like me, you will get some of this a little bit. I will say my dad was not the great Santini at all. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. Because I could not. I mean, I, no. I'm so glad even my dad doesn't speak on military time. Like, that just... Right. He keeps, you know, referencing military time. Like, you, we mm. need to be in the car by 0800 hours. And I was like, Thank God my dad doesn't talk like that. Fuck. That's so annoying. <laughs> well, this this is a great movie to also reinforce what wasn't traumatic about fathers, maybe, for some folks. Like, you had a military dad, but it wasn't like this. <laughs> yeah. 
It is, it's a really, it's a tough movie to watch, but it's very, it's a very interesting portrayal of that father-son relationship in a way that I think hadn't really been fully expressed or explored um, up to that point. So I really, I loved it. Yes. And we're going to take a little bit of a shift with your film, but I love it because it is like, my film is very obviously about dads, but yours is a little backdoor entry and I love it. So... Well, because I feel like with my film, like, once you look at it through the lens of parenthood, it becomes even more sinister. Yeah. So. 100%. (laughs) Happy to do it. Uh, My film for the theme, T is for Trauma, was released in 1987. Screenplay is by James Dearden, directed by Adrian Lin, and it is Fatal Attraction. I'm not going to be ignored. I just want to start out by saying there's a lot to read about this, like scholars and academics and a lot of you know pop cultural critics have been dissecting this movie since it came out. But I will just say, blanket statement, I was a child when this film came out. I was like nine or 10 years old. Even then, I knew this movie had everyone in a fucking headlock. People were goddamn terrified. Like, this is truly a horror movie for a lot of people. Did you see this movie when you were a kid? Yeah, of course. Oh my god, I, I, I mean, I should have guessed, right? But um, <laughs> I, yeah, I was, I didn't see it until I was an adult because I was, a, I was terrified of this movie as a kid. Oh really? Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. That is fascinating. Yeah, it is. I definitely saw it as a kid, and maybe that explains a lot about my unwillingness to be in a relationship. <laughs> Shit. Because it is, it's complicated, but it doesn't have to be this complicated. Yeah. Um, but one sentence synopsis about fatal attraction is a father's one night stand with a disturbed woman eventually wreaks havoc on his life, his job, and his child's sense of security. <laughs> Perfection. So just in general, because I'm going to break this movie down into the the mistakes that the char- the main character makes and the trauma that his child then receives as a result. But the cast is incredible. You've got Michael Douglas playing Dan Gallagher and Archer, he plays his wife, Beth Gallagher. Ellen Latson plays Ellen Gallagher, like the cutest little kid in the world. And then Glenn Close plays Alex Forrest, who is the one night stand. So essentially, we have this family. Dan's an attorney for a publisher in New York City. They have a nice apartment, like, but they're looking to move to a house upstate near um, Beth's parents. And, you know, Beth is, like, super hot and, like, a very cool woman. And, um, like, they've been married for nine years. And they have this adorable kid who just, Ellen, is just content to do war paint and eat fruit roll-ups. And her babysitter is a young Jane Krakowski. So Ellen's living it up. They have a cool dog named Quincy. Quincy's just like one of those old 80s dogs who's like, occasionally people will take him out for a walk, but otherwise he's just around. Yeah, Um, I was like that age. I mean, I was probably in in elementary school in 87. And when she's watching You Can't Do That on television and uh eating the fruit roll-ups, I was like, that was my fucking life. (laughs) Every day after school. I was like, well, because it Ellen had the word me. fruit, fruit in the label, parents thought it was healthy. Yeah. <laughs> like, Just fruit was wa- in the label. Watching, like, at some point, the Michael Douglas character actually eats one too. Like, he yeah. just eats one off the table. And I'm like, why the fuck did we eat those? Those are so yeah. weird and gross. <laughs> oh, yeah. And watching Ellen when, when she's talking on the phone to Dan at one point, and she's like rolling the fruit roll up on the table and the chair. And I'm like, just picking up every fucking germ in sight. <laughs> They're like, these are disgusting. 
absolute filth. Why? We had them all over our sticky, gross oh. hands and like, oh. oh my God. Fruit sheet. Why the fuck were we putting <laughs> fruit sheets in our mouth? That's so weird. And when, when she first unrolled it, it looked like a piece of American cheese. Yes, it and I'm like, what is this giant piece of American cheese? Oh, wait, it's a fruit roll-off. <laughs> like, <laughs> but otherwise, living the life of fucking Riley. Ellen yeah. is fine. And then, so, so when we first meet um, Alex, the Glenn Close character, they're at this party for, you know, again, the publisher that Dan is an attorney for. And we meet Glenn Close and, and she's wearing this deflated trash bag and she comes in forehead first. Like she's got her bangs all brushed back and it's just like all fucking <laughs> forehead. And they're at a party for something, for a book called Samurai Self-Help, which just kind of should indicate what a yuppie fucking nightmare this is. <laughs> <laughs> and then you also have, there's this this set of like the couple friend that, that Dan and... Um, Beth have. And the couple friends are basically, you'll know him, you'll know him if you see him, but Stuart Pankin and Ellen Foley. And Stuart Pankin plays this guy named Jimmy, and they all kind of, you know, he's also a lawyer. He's like the Jason Alexander, Larry Miller of this movie, right? (laughs) 100%. And he's also that 80s stereotype dude where like every word that comes out of his mouth is a quote unquote joke about killing his wife and wanting to kill his wife. So she asks him for a drink and he's like, yeah, hemlock with a twist. And you're like, what the fuck is your problem? Like, why why is she still married to him? Why you got to come out like that about your fucking wife? God, he needs a fucking horse tranquilizer stat. <laughs> put it, put him down. Just put him down for the <laughs> night. Don't take him to parties. God. Give him a fucking, just knock him out and put him to sleep for the night because he doesn't need to be there. Just thr- every, even at like a simple dinner party, he's just like, ah, I wish I could kill you. And you're like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> if you start paying attention, there's a lot of that character in 80s movies. And you're like, this is really weirdly veiled violence that yeah. I don't understand. Oh god. So this party is a mess and but you know she's in they he, Dan and Alex meet and she's an editor at the publishing house that he represents and so they they meet. When Beth and Ellen go upstate for one day to look at the house that they want to buy that's near her parents, Dan immediately has a fucking one night stand. One day they're going to be gone and then he the, he's the kind of guy who goes out in the rain without opening his umbrella first. So he goes out in the rain and he's like, oh, my umbrella doesn't work. And Glenn Close saves him and they get a drink and they smoke indoors and no one explains why they're working on a Saturday, but they were working on a Saturday. And then they fuck. She takes him home and they fuck. And here's the thing. First, first mistake that dad makes. He takes her home. He hits it raw. Even the sink is turning them on. Awful. This is the, this is the, the height of the AIDS epidemic. We're talking 1987. He's already putting Beth at risk just to have this one weird fucking sex moment with someone you work with. Dan, you work with her. Even if you're not in the same office, don't shit where you fucking eat. Yeah. Clearly mistake number, chief among them, number one. Yeah. Yeah. And Adrian Lin is the director who I think we've talked about before on this pod. And if you don't know, you can read about Adrian Lin, but he, certified freak, seven days a week. Like every movie he has, 
has just the most intense sex scenes, this movie being no different. So that's his first mistake. His second mistake is that they go out dancing. Now, let me tell you, if you stop fucking to go out dancing, you're on a date. Yes. Okay? You're on a date. This is no longer, it might still be casual, but just recognize that you're on a date, which he never does at any point. So he checks in with his family. They're going to stay another night because, you know, Ellen wants a rabbit. They don't want to drive home. And he's like, great, I get to fuck Alex for a whole other night. Finally, it hits him. I got to go get Quincy and take Quincy out. So he he goes home and Alex is kind of sad, like, oh, I can't believe we're leaving. But he goes home to get Quincy and then she calls and she's like, well, you should come back and you can bring the dog. And he does. But now he's made Quincy complicit in this whole illicit affair. I'm not not a fan. Well, and like this is the the point that I think I always think about when I see this movie was that he claims to... Beth, that it was like a one night stand. And I'm like, no, 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 uh-huh. no. There was multiple locations. Yep. So you're lying. You went, if you've left to go to a salsa club, then that's mm-hmm. that's a that's a longer than a one night stand. That's a multiple event outing. So fuck that. Anyway. And it spanned at least two days. Yes. And they were in the park frolicking. If you're frolicking, that's not a one night stand. It could be, it's a casual encounter, but it's not a one-night stand. Yeah, wasn't it like touch football? Did they, yeah. they play? Okay, you play touch football. It's a little bit more than a one-night stand. You're fucking arm-in-arm arm going to get damn bagels or whatever the fuck you do, like a real couple. You were acting like a real couple. Exactly. <laughs> and Alex starts to showcase her intensity during this phone call where she's like, come over, come over. And then she does, and they fuck again, and she's, She's like, oh, why are all the good guys married? And I feel like I know you already. If you hear either of those things coming out of anyone's mouth, run the fuck away. Yeah. So that was another mistake, but I'm, I'm calling it like mistake 2.5 because it still takes place in the same world. Why are all the good guys married? They're not. You're just nonstop fucking married dudes. So like you're in New York. Make the effort. Find someone single. Agreed. Third mistake. He tries to leave finally from this weekend fuckfest and she slashes her fucking wrists. Yeah. And here's the mistake part. One, he doesn't fucking call for help and two, he stays and sews her up and helps her out and makes I mean this is someone who's clearly in a fragile state and he's staying and nursing her through it which to her indicates that he wants to stay and he's interested in her and wants to help her. Is it a manipulative move to slash your fucking wrist when someone's trying to leave and you don't want them to? Of course. He should have called the fucking ambulance and gotten the fuck out of there and moved upstate that night. Yeah. Get the fuck out of there. But he stays. Mistake number three. Mistake number four. After she starts obsessively calling his house, she asks to meet up with him and he does. What is your problem, Dan? Yeah. And of course, the meeting is in, is unhinged because she's like, well, also, um, I'm pregnant. And deal with that, motherfucker. And I'm keeping it because uh, this could be my, I love this when they say this in movies, this could be my last chance to have a baby. And I'm like, yeah, but is this the one you want? Even if it is your last chance, this is the baby you want? Yeah, and she said she's like 36 or something. And yeah. I was like, damn, she was supposed to be 36 in that movie? I know. 
Maybe it was all the smoking indoors, but I was like, damn, I thought, like, even now, I was like, oh, she looks like she's at least in her early 40s, but, you know. It was the self-tanner, or like, I don't know what was going on in the 80s, but that Frosted was... Frosted lipstick, I don't know. Frosted lipstick is no one's friend. No one's <laughs> friend. But yeah, she is like, I'm pregnant, fucking deal with it. He breaks, this is part of his fourth mistake, 4.5, after he does agree to meet up with her. He then breaks into her place looking for proof that she's pregnant, which, what? What fucking proof are you going to find? Ugh, can't with him. So he changes his number, and he does everything that you think, okay, finally he's trying to break away from this woman. Like, she can find him at work, and she does. Like, she comes to his office and pretends to be cool about breaking up with him, but that obviously is not the case. So he thinks he's in the clear, but then he comes home one day, and she has shown up pretending to be a buyer for his apartment, because they're trying to sell the apartment now that they have purchased this house upstate. Right. And he comes home, and she's talking to to Beth, and Beth is singing like a fucking canary. She's like, here's our number. We're moving to Bedford. Come stalk us, essentially. Yeah. That was like a huge moment for me in this rewatch where I was like, oh, yeah, she gave, like, he he had their phone number unlisted. Guess what? It's listed again. Exactly. To To the one person you don't want it to be listed to. And then she's like, oh, yeah, this is the town we're moving to. Like, I was like... We give away information to strangers all willy-nilly. Too much. Wow. We did then. This movie changed something. <laughs> yeah. So this, we have this scene then where he kind of confronts her in her apartment about coming to his house. And we get that great line of her saying, I'm not going to be ignored, Dan, which I love. And he's, you know, Dan's increasingly more afraid of the phone. Like, every time the phone rings, he looks like he's going to jump out of his skin. But they move upstate. Ellen gets her rabbit. Things seem cool for a minute. Then Dan goes to his car one day after work. And Alex has poured acid all over his car. Don't fuck with her. Man. <laughs> She's, like, stalking him in the garage. And then he goes to his car and he's like, what the fuck? Yeah. And I think it was acid. I actually don't know. But it looked like she looked poured like some it. kind of like acidic goop all over his fucking car, which is, again, signal A number one, go to the cops. Yeah. But again, that, that we're talking about a time when people didn't do that as readily. And if you did, you were nine times out of ten not really believed. Yeah. Like most women who went to report this kind of, you know, stalking behavior weren't believed and men certainly weren't believed. So different well, time. And also, too, he did not want to reveal the fact that he had had an affair, you know? Right? So he's just like, I'm going to handle it myself. I Or, you know, I don't want to tell my wife, but it's like, mm-hmm. dude, it got kicked up several notches. It's time to come clean. You know? Oh, yeah. As soon as she says I'm pregnant and starts pulling that shit. Like, it's time to come clean for sure. Yeah. But he does finally go to the cops. But this is after, so after, you know, the, the acid is on the car and, and you know, she, she leaves him a cassette tape, but she rents a car and listens to it on the way home, takes the tape into the house, which I'm like, what are you doing, dude? Anyone could find that tape. What are you doing? But so his sixth mistake to me is that he has this tape, which is true fucking evidence. But when he goes to the cops, he's like, oh, yeah. A friend of a friend is having some problems with a lady. Like like you said, because he doesn't want to admit his affair, he doesn't even admit what's going on with him. Right. So the cops are like, yeah, I guess we could call her out, but that might provoke her. We don't know if we should do this because he's not giving them the full fucking scope of the picture. And he's not handing them this cassette tape, which is actual evidence. Yeah. <laughs> Sixth mistake. 
So now here's where, El- where Ellen's trauma comes in. Mm. Two distinct moments where, first and foremost, she's been uprooted from her life and moved upstate. Which, the house is nice, it's fine, and she gets her rabbit, that's okay. She lives near her grandparents. Not the worst thing. But when Dan finally confesses to Beth that he has had an affair, they're in the living room of their house, he's screaming, she's screaming, they're having this intense fucking argument, and then you hear Ellen sobbing. She's gotten out of bed and hears the whole thing, and the way she grabs her little throat in that scene just— shatters me. Me like too. Like a fucking glass figurine. I was like, look at this little girl with her hand in her chest like she's yeah. about the vapors. I was like, oh my God. It is so sad. It's so sad. And so she's basically watching her, her, fa- her father admit that he's had an affair and both of her parents are upset. And when you're like that little of a kid and like you don't know what's fucking going on. Like it's just, it's traumatic. It's traumatic to watch a kid be traumatized in that way. So the second point of trauma for Ellen is that one day Beth goes to get her from school and she's fucking gone because Alex has stolen her from school. And even though she takes her to Playland, she has stolen their child. So Ellen's like, eventually Ellen's going to find out the hardest possible way by the end of this movie, that this woman who took her to the fucking Playland day of fun is also the woman who's going to be dead in her house in like two days. Question. Do you think she wanted to go on that roller coaster, Ellen? Absolutely not. That's what I think. No. She was, her whole face was like, nope, hate this, hate this, hate this. But this weird lady picked me up from school and made me ride a fucking roller coaster with her. Trauma. That, to me, I would be in therapy for that for the rest of my fucking life, okay? Oh, 100%, especially because in her frantic search for this child, Beth gets into a fucking car accident and, like, almost breaks her goddamn neck. So, like, your day of fun is the cause of your mom possibly dying, almost dying. Oh, I would be, like, a fucking Ari Aster making several movies about... The time that I was six years old and this strange woman took me on a roller coaster while my mom was in the hospital. I'd be like, I would not be able to do any creative work outside of that theme. Period. (laughs) The cornerstone of my fucking life. (laughs) Yeah. So after this move, because Beth doesn't know what's going on, but after Dan realizes, you know, because he's now moved out of the house and he's living at their apartment again. And once he realizes someone took his kid, he knows it's Alex. So he goes to Alex's house to confront her, and they have this nasty fucking fight, and knives are pulled and all kinds of shit. But he's like, basically, I'm going to the police for real. He does, but she's already gone. Like, they can't find her. He's finally like, all right, I confess that it was me and all this shit's going on because of me. But again, final point of trauma (laughs) for Ellen, and possibly a final mistake is eventually, and I think I can say this because it's a pretty iconic moment in the movie. I don't think I'm ruining anything for anyone. And it's still shocking to see when you see it. Um, if you haven't seen the movie or you're going to watch it for the first time. But Alex eventually breaks in to their house and she's wearing this white gown and she's holding this knife and she's like walking towards Beth in the bathroom and slicing her leg up and like just being real nuts. And um, they kill her together. Like, so Dan basically shoots her 
in the bathroom and kills her. Now, if Ellen's parents fighting woke her up, them killing a woman in the bathroom 100% woke her up. They didn't show that part in the movie. But that is the final layer of the trauma cake for Ellen. Yeah. Let's not also forget that there's a point where the family goes to the grandparents' house for the day. And when they come back, Alex has not just killed Ellen's new pet rabbit. She boils it in a lobster pot on the fucking stove. <laughs> yeah. That, that was the part of the film that I had heard about. Right. And I was terrified of, like, as a child. Which is, I mean, I wouldn't have watched Fatal Attraction. My parents would have never let me see that movie anyway. But I was like, uh, I can't watch this because I hear that they boil a live rabbit. And I'm like, uh... Yeah. yeah, and thankfully we don't see that part. But it looks like she cut the rabbit's throat and then stuck it in the pot. But still, Trump, still traumatic, still yeah. traumatic, and also could have burned the fucking house down. So oh, Ellen has just got this this layered trauma of my rabbit's dead, my parents are getting divorced, my mom and dad are fighting, I've been kidnapped, my mom's in a fucking hospital because I've been kidnapped, and they had to murder a woman in, in our bathroom. Yeah. If you look at Fatal Attraction from Ellen's POV, it is a traumatic fucking movie. A hundred percent. And I feel like not enough people are saying that. So thank you for bringing it to the theme. So I feel like everyone's <sighs> like, oh, that's no, just a movie about a guy cheating. And I was like, you know that there are all these other people involved. One thank of whom you. is a six-year-old girl with the cutest little haircut I've ever seen. Oh, love this kid. Yeah. yeah. Trauma. She, and she will be in therapy for the rest of her lives. Uh, listen, I fucking love that you picked this movie for the theme. I'm so happy to have seen it again. It scares the shit out of me still. Like, yeah, it is really it's still terrifying. But honestly, like, this theme is great. We always do a Father's Day episode, and we love, like, knocking them a little bit. <laughs> With the, the murderous dads, the robot dads, the team for trauma dads. So I'm sorry if you're a dad. I'm sure you're a good one. I'm sure you're, well, the, maybe you're the not. good one. You're maybe not. Just admit it. Either way, admit it. Be like, I'm a <laughs> shitty dad. And recognize that you need to stop causing your children trauma <laughs> while you still can. I would just suggest going to, if you don't have a child, just start going to therapy now before you even yeah. get pregnant. Okay? So Work your shit out before you spawn. Well, listen, if you want to email us, please do so. I saw what you did, pod at gmail.com. And we are on our social media at I Saw Pod on Instagram and Twitter. We also have merch. Um, please go to the I Saw What You Did section of the Exactly Right shop to find it. And bonus episodes, old bonus episodes are now unlocked and free and popping up on the main feed every couple of weeks. Uh, new bonus episodes are every third Thursday of the month. Excellent. And so the movies for next week are so fucking good. I'm so excited. So our movies for next week are Heavenly Bodies from 1984 and Perfect from 1985. And I will say this about Heavenly Bodies. Go to the Internet Archive. That's all I'll say. <laughs> go there. Done and done. Well, Danielle, as always, a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. The best. The best. You're my favorite dad. Bye. Oh, you're my favorite dad. <laughs> This has been an Exactly Right production, produced by Casey O'Brien, mixed by Edson Choi. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel, artwork by Garrett Ross. 
Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ISawPod. And you can email us at ISawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit ExactlyRightStore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.